Hello and welcome to our first episode of Woolcast, where we talk about farmers, fibers, and folks. My name is Katie, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so. Today you'll hear a recorded conversation with Jennifer and Becky of Upper Canada Fiber Shed. We'll chat about their nonprofit organization, the state of Ontario's wool industry with a bit of history thrown in, and a few other things. This recording was made during Field to Fashion short dog filming, so please excuse the low volumes on my end and some random noises like chairs, squeaks and such. I promise that audio quality will improve for the next episodes. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Jennifer and Becky. So let's start with your names and the company and everything else. So that would be a good beginning. I'm Jennifer Osborne. What's your title? But we get to that after. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Becky Corlier, co-founder Upper Canada Fiber Shed. Yes. We are the founders of Upper Canada Fiber Shed. Could you tell me a little bit of a background story, how you started the Fiber Shed? This is fun. We get asked this a lot. It's actually, it's yes. a cute story. Do you want me to tell it or do you yeah, want you can to tell it? Yeah. <laughs> so Jennifer and I met at the Guelph Organic Conference. I had been working on organic farms and was really into the local food movement and came across Rebecca Burgess's blog and just sort of fell in love with this whole idea of uh, fiber and clothing being an agricultural product. Uh, and Jennifer was at the Rare Breeds booth or All Sorts Acre. One of Yeah, the- I had an All Sorts Acre booth. And um, what was I speaking on that year? I think it was the very large food, for, like the one acre. The food forest. Yeah, the yeah. one acre food forest. The low labor one acre food forest. <laughs> yes, and I went to your talk and then I saw yeah. at the booth that you had fiber and I just went up and said, do you know what a fiber shed is? And I said, yes, you know what a fiber shed is? And yep. we connected over that and got together, I think, the week after and started laying out plans like, what yep. would a fiber shed in Ontario look like? And kind of making trouble ever since. <laughs> yes, yes. So that was... 2013 and then we kind of sat on it for a couple of years and just bounced ideas around and really had no idea what we were doing or where to go no, um, no. nobody had caught up to us yet <laughs> 2015 yeah. yeah 2015 we started yeah. offering memberships and connecting yeah. with the community and from there it just snowballed so that was the start that was the start yeah it was uh yeah literally like a kitchen table thing it's like that's really cool let's do it yeah it's like how do we do it? I don't know, but let's do it anyways. Yeah. <laughs> so what is included in a fiber shed? What is fiber shed? Well, for us, we've always looked at it as, um, technically speaking, 400 kilometers around Toronto, just because the population density here is so low and we just don't, we weren't really sure what our resource base was or how many people would actually be interested. So we went really big, hoping eventually we could scale down. So a fiber shed is much like a synonymous with a watershed or a food shed. And it includes the fiber farmers, the makers, the artists, everybody involved in creating a regenerative textile supply chain. Also, it includes the mills and the shearers and yet anybody that has anything to do and and the retailers get the retailers. That's very important. And really because as this, as we've kind of been going along this journey, um, there aren't a lot of fiber resources Um, in Canada in general. They're, they're few and far between. So in a lot of ways, the upper Canada fiber shed encompasses anything at some points, anything within Canada. Um, so ideally within kind of 
250 mile radius of Toronto, but then you have places like North Bay or Sault Ste. Marie or Sudbury that may be just out of that, but they don't have the resources at the moment for them to do it themselves, so they are also included, or parts of Quebec, and even parts of the U.S., because theoretically that is also part of our fiber shed. If there was no border, that would also be part of, of the ecological fiber shed or the natural kind of um, geographical region. We try really hard to make sure that a fiber shed product is 100% local fiber, local labor, local dyes. And but. we also... <laughs> but, but... For the sake of having something, instead of aiming for perfection, it's what can we do right now. A couple of our producers do have to have their fiber milled in New Brunswick, Legacy Lane, or some of them send it out to the States just because we don't have the milling capacity for either the type of fiber that they have or they're working on a deadline or yeah. So there's a little bit of wiggle room in that. And it's we kind of step out. Yeah. We kind of step out. What do we have is what is needed close by. If it is, that's our, the first go to, if it's not close by, do the next step out. Is it available in Canada? If it's not available in Canada, then you do the next step out. Is it available in the U S and then you kind of keep going. Cotton is a big one because we don't grow cotton. And the Canadian linen industry at one point was thriving during the World Wars, kind of the beginning and middle of the 20th century. But that collapsed and we really don't have a linen industry or a hemp industry or any kind of plant fiber industry. It is slowly slowly being revived out in Nova Scotia through Taproot Fiber Lab. We don't have plant fibers, and a lot of what we wear is based on a cotton or a linen. So our next go-to is to do the Texas Organic Cotton Co-op. So it's organic cotton out of the U.S. And if that's not available, we will tend to go to organic, regenerative, sustainable, and verifiable. Traceable is extremely important. Um, and same with the dyes. Like we yeah. don't have any, we don't have capacity for indigo dyes or. Uh, matter dyes or red or blue right now, which are kind of a cornerstone of uh, color. Uh, lots of yellow. We can do yellow and brown really well, but uh, red and blue are really challenging on any kind of scale. Um, the dyes are a really yeah. fun conversation, too. They are a fun conversation, yeah. But we can get natural dyes. And so we, we go to the next best available source. And we also don't, we are also very conscious of not being protectionist. Right. Because that's a that's another really big conversation in uh, in in any value and supply chain. Sometimes yeah. there's no point forcing it, and you, you want to work together. Back to this question though of what is our fiber shed? Some of the I think it'd probably be useful to highlight some of the products that we do yes. have. And it's the question has always been what is locally available? What does the resource base support? What are people actually interested in? And that's, it's, it's a huge thing to figure out and to, to learn, but so far we have, uh, well, Jennifer does felting. So an incredible array of any possible felted product you can imagine. Uh, we have blankets, there's Peggy Sue is working on amazing clothing. Yeah. Like designer clothing. Um, we have so much raw material too. That's really yes. where we are right now is just figuring out how to connect the urban market with the rural areas. So like our event Landmade was all about bringing the farmers into the city and they sold roving and yarn and fleece and 
So we're definitely in the beginning baby stages. Oh yes. And just saying, what do we have and what what do people want to make? What can we make? And then looking a little bit longer term. Oh my goodness, we have so many irons in the fire. It's fantastic. Yeah. And and uh uh countering that is also what the farmers can produce. Yes. Um because there are some things we are just not able to do effectively and Part of the reason to also have the farmers in there is they are the ones that have the animals that raise the fiber. And sometimes uh, as a consumer, it's not always apparent that, well, why don't you have Merino? Well, there's a whole story behind Merino that as a consumer, you may not realize that they're not suitable for this climate. Um, They are dry weather. Do you realize the amount of sometimes inputs or feed that a particular type of animal needs? Good quality fiber means well-fed animals and that can be challenging and not necessarily cost effective either or you need to change your breeds so this is also part of what Fibershed does is to try and educate consumers about what is available in a regenerative sustainable fashion because we can theoretically do anything whether or not we want to whether or not it is good for the environment whether or not it's good for our land base Whether or not we can do it well is a whole different question. A lot of our sheep industry has been very much based on uh, the U.S. and Australia and New Zealand. They can grow animals that do very well in their climates that also happen to have fine wool. We are a northern country, and we most of the country, particularly where there are sheep, there is snow or cold on the ground for six months a year. Mm -hmm. So that presents its own set of challenges. Then, of course, there's also the question of how much agricultural land we want to go to animal feed as opposed to feeding people. So there are a lot of nuances in what fibers we can produce from an agricultural standpoint as opposed to just a usability of the end product standpoint. And that is something that, although as farmers you think about, because that's your bottom line, as a user isn't always apparent and it has not really been talked about. So it's it's not the consumers. It really has not even been presented to a consumer on some of the challenges because often wool is just presented as it's, it, it's just presented as a product. Wool. It's yeah. very, very, it's almost more removed where it comes from than food is because it's very hard for people to have your backyard sheep and like do your own sheep shearing or alpaca. Yeah. Um, whereas you can grow a tomato What's very interesting is uh, we're very lucky in Ontario. We actually have one of the largest concentration of uh, sheep in the country um, between Quebec, Alberta, and Ontario. That is where the majority of, of the sheep are. Uh, most of them are for meat, but there is there's huge capacity to do good fiber. It's just a matter of putting the infrastructure in place. And from a humane and ethical standpoint, because sheep are not many cows... Uh, sheep don't do well in kind of situations that cattle would. So it's much, they're more fragile for than cattle are. So you kind of, in a lot of ways to do well, to get good fiber and to get good lamb and just have healthy animals, which farmers want, you need to treat them a lot better. Is there any criteria when you select the members for the fiber shed and for the farmers? Is there any criteria that they have to follow to be part of the fiber shed? Um, (laughs) We like to start a dialogue with them because we're coming from the place of nobody should be excluded in this. 
all of our producer members, all the farmers I've ever met or talked to love their animals. They treat them with respect. You know, this is their livelihood. There's no concern on animal welfare fronts at all. If there was, then they wouldn't be a member for sure. And they probably wouldn't be interested in being they a wouldn't member, be frankly. Interested. Yeah, they, it, they just wouldn't. It, we're lucky because people sort of get the idea and so they're attracted to the organization because they want to be part of a community, part of a movement. They already have an idea of sustainability and and what that looks like. So That's also yeah. very much promoted by the um, Ontario Sheep Marketing Agency. From a, a, a kind of an ethical welfare standpoint, the OSMA, uh, the Ontario Sheep Marketing Agency, or Ontario Sheep as it's now been kind of re- rebranded, have actually have gone through a best practices update and uh, are very much on top of ethical and humane and welfare-centered farming. Um, is that it's much harder to abuse sheep than it is cattle or, or pigs. They die. Then that kind of defeats the whole purpose of farming if your animals are dying on you. So sheep are really good that way. They yeah. they let you know if they're happy, and <laughs> you have to kind of be on top of it if you've got sheep. If you don't, you don't have sheep. I would say we get really excited to see new members sign up that have rare breeds or interesting breeds or really large flocks, really small flocks. People who are um, really interested in getting involved and. Her want to engage in the issues. We just had somebody sign up that has a Lincoln Marvel. Yes, yes, is, actually, yeah, she did, which is a very, it's an, actually it's a critically a, endangered, critically breed endangered worldwide. Breed. Yeah, so yes. very, very exciting to be a part of this because yeah. our goal is to sort of help her access other markets, get yeah. her wool out there, and also do the education piece on this is a fantastic breed for Canadian products. It would make amazing yeah. rugs amazing outerwear it's just it's such a beautiful fiber yeah and breeding stock because that's another part of this is if you're a farmer particularly if you have a small flock with rare breeds you sell your animals you can't keep all of them so if you have good quality animals and you are beginning to make a living off of we are trying to help farmers that are doing that that maybe don't want 400 or 500 sheep so in terms of fiber, if somebody has the whole flock, like Lincoln, right, do you guys help them to get their fiber into the mill or connecting it that way? Uh, well, most of the producers that we work with already have their supply chain set up. So, for example, they know which mills they like. They mm-hmm. They already have their system established, which is really fantastic because that's actually a situated embedded kind of knowledge that not like every farmer will come to it with a different perspective so one of the things we can do is help them troubleshoot if they're having an issue they say oh talk to so and so because they actually had this experience or maybe try this blend and maybe you want to throw a little alpaca in there to soften it up and yeah yeah particularly for the small for the smaller flocks they're generally a lot of farmers that a lot of the women a lot of them were women too yeah actually the majority of them are women farmers which is really interesting (laughs) yeah the smaller flocks that do deal with the rare breeds, often they have come to it because they started off spinning or knitting yeah. or they in the fiber arts somewhere where we actually do end up assisting farmers with kind of where to bring their wool or how to deal with their wool is more the larger meat flocks yeah. that have 
never given up on wool. And we do actually have two or three yeah. fairly sizable flocks that are kind of two or three hundred animals. And their wool is surprisingly beautiful. And their wool is really it's nice. Really and nice. the farmers do an excellent job. But because it's not something that has really been promoted from a farm standpoint, it is beginning now. The large shepherds are really beginning to get very interested in what they can do with their wool. And no, it might not be for sweaters or for scarves or for baby clothes, but so many other kind of the other things... And, and we do look to countries that have similar types of wool. Uh, the UK is one of them. And the majority of the British wool clip uh, goes into carpets. But they have a full system to make carpets from clip to finished product. And that's something we're kind of lacking here. So part of our eventual goal is to also build capacity, which mm-hmm. is kind of Becky's area of expertise, to be able to kind of identify what do we need, how do we need it, how much it's going to cost. Yeah. And is it a viable product? Yeah. And carpets are. What are the best? What are the best <laughs> yeah. value chains? For exactly. The- Thank you. That's a much better way of putting it. <laughs> some, I, yeah. For the resources we have. And I guess that's the other thing we do too. So we talked a bit about how do you do we help the farmers get to the point of having a, a viable product that they would market, and most of them are already there. So let's say they're already growing fiber for yarn. So then it's, okay, you can sell that yarn direct to a consumer who's going to make it into a sweater, or what are the other things that we can do with that yarn? Yeah. And would you like to put it into blankets, or maybe we go back to just your raw fleece, and maybe we sell that to fashion designers, and what are some of the bigger picture, bigger ticket items, sort of taking it out of the like the home backyard craft to more of like a maker, small cottage yeah. industry. Because we're really like trying boutique to... Boutique manufacturing. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, a, kind that's of, a good way of yeah. putting it. How do we make this scalable is really the yeah. question. How do we take it to the next level? Is it possible to make it scalable in Ontario or Canada? Yes. Yes, it is. So we do have manufacturing in place. We, d- th- we don't have the manufacturing. <laughs> yeah, we do not have the manufacturing. There's we the skills the, to do it. It's, we have everything. It's just not connected. Yeah. So that is our job. But there's also some key pieces of infrastructure that yes. I'm missing too. Blankets are a really good example. Yeah. So people love wool blankets. It's that simple. There are very few options for people to make blankets, particularly if you are coming from the outside. The biggest mill is actually in Prince Edward Island, the Cosland. Mm-hmm. And this is for machine woven. Yeah. So this is kind of a non-exclusive not not exclusive. What's the word? Well, because we can do hand woven here. No hand woven, we can do, and there that there is capacity for that. But if you want to bring price points down to make yes. fiber shed products accessible to everybody, to different demographics, then uh, you do have to bring manufacturing into it, and you do need machinery. And really, the only place that it's done, uh, at least on in eastern Canada, is McCausland Wool. They are an amazing, amazing mill. Been doing it for generations now. There used to be one in Ontario, Belle Valley, but uh, they burned down. So there's really, in eastern Canada, one blanket maker in all of eastern Canada. But to set up a blanket mill is a million dollars, say. So to be able to make a, a business plan, a viable business plan for that, takes a lot of work. And there's a lot of um, a lot of expertise is needed from manufacturing to fiber to farming to know how to do this. Because once you get into manufacturing, you are paying for machinery and you need to keep those machines going because they cost. And Just even sitting there doing nothing, they cost. And the biggest thing with looking for investment or a, 
initiating some sort of project like that is proving the demand. Yes. And that uh, that's the one place where I think we're it's growing exponentially. Yes. Uh, but we're just not at that saturation point yet. Like I think fiber shed and the fiber shed movement is where slow food started 30 years ago. Yeah. And so there's a, a huge amount of time and you know people just need to become aware of this so there's that education component that we have but demand is is a crucial issue so and education because at the moment very much when you think about fiber or if you think about wool the majority of the people will go to yarn which means going to knitting which means going to clothing but wool is being used internationally everything we look at is being proven somewhere else in the world we kind of look across the globe, see what are what are these people doing with wool, and often they have already proven it. So it is a matter of bringing technologies or ideas from one place to another and modifying it so it works within Ontario and then Canada. But uh, there are some very innovative things that people are doing with wool, everything from grow mats to insulation to oil spill cleanup. Things like like really interesting, more industrial uses that will capture all classes of wool, not just fine wool, not just um, clothing wool, but also the wool that is is put into bags and the farmers just going, I do not have time for this. And it just goes to Canadian Wool Growers Cooperative. It's undervalued right now. It's undervalued, but it's possible to do it. Because not everybody's going to want to skirt everything because farmers are busy people and we're always doing something and we can't do everything. It's that simple. Like any business owner, because ultimately they are, it's a labor of love, but it's also often our living. Can we talk a little bit about history of wool in Canada and what it used to be and what it is now? Sure. That's, yeah. I think that's more your area. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, yeah I guess talk to me about wool. I'll, I'll never shut up. Um, so internationally, basically, wool built kingdoms. Wool was the backbone of most of the most of the northern world. When you get north of the equator, wool was it. Wool is such a versatile and unique fiber that you can do almost anything with it. So, of course, when Europeans came to Canada, wool was kind of the go-to fiber because, well, sheep walk around and they pro- sheep provide milk and meat and clothing. But we used to have a fairly sizable flock in Can- wool flock in Canada. And the rare breeds at that point were very important because they were not just meat sheep. The way sheep were raised is they had to do more than just provide meat. Like a lot of farm animals, they also had to provide wool because we would make our clothing out of wool. If you go back 200 years or go to Black Creek Pioneer Village or somewhere like that, they that's how they made their cloth. And that's what the weavers and spinners are about. You know, they would spin the yarns and they would make their, their cloth. Um, tweed cloth is very much like that. So we did have a very large wool flock at one point, as particularly after World War II, as a lot of the technology and science that was used during the war for innovation for fighting was brought into mainstream and everyday life. Uh, Synthetics began to be made. And then you got your polyesters and your nylons and essentially cheap fossil fuels were made into fabric. Oil was made in fabric. Dead dinosaurs became fabric as opposed to live sheep. And it became cheaper and wool 
just it lost its value. There was really no reason for it. Of course, we are now learning that polar fleece is making the connection that, you know, all that wonderful polar fleece that really came up in the 80s, I guess, is actually plastic and it degrades and it's now microbeads in water. So we're beginning to realize the value that our ancestors knew about in natural fibers. So wool was very much the backbone of of a lot of fiber production in Canada and Ontario. Can't not mention linen and flax, which was grown very much in and around Lake Huron and kind of between, I guess, kind of, yeah, the Kitchener-Waterloo-Owen Sound Strip because it, it was perfect for flax and we would make canvas. Ontario particularly would provide an awful lot of canvas and woolen cloth for the British Army and the, the British, for, for both uniforms and for tents and things like that. And farmers would just put flax in their rotation because if you're doing field crops, the traditional way of doing it, when you didn't have a lot of the nitrogen fertilizers, you would have to rotate your crops between different crops and be very conscious of what crops were in there, providing soil nutrients and taking away soil nutrients. And often these farms also had animals that they would spread the manure. So, and I'm digressing. So thank you. A a much more integrated system. um, Whereas farming has changed now. When you kind of think of the space age, mid century fifties, everything had to be new and modern. So that's when plastic really came out of the, out of the woodwork and like every Tupperware became big. and, And like, that's when plastic, kind of took over. took over yeah like i think the woolen mill in cambridge really only closed down in the 60s yeah up until the 60s there was still quite a bit of wool being processed in canada there there was still a fair demand um actually even until the 70s i actually have a coat from that my mom bought actually it was a cape that was uh yeah it, it, it's scratchy wool but it was it was made in montreal and even just as things moved overseas and as yeah, trade it, it, agreements it's, really... Well, trade agreements, leisure time, mechanization. There are, in a lot of way, the historical fiber production story is like any other manufacturing story because it does come down to these things were manufactured. Yeah. And a lot of it came down to wanting something cheap and disposable. Yes. The disposable aspect. And that's part of what Upper Canada Fiber Shed strives to do is kind of there's fiber everywhere, whether it be on your seat cushions, whether it be in your seat cushions, because wool also used to be used for stuffing. And that's what a lot of the neat sheep breeds are great for. They're very puffy and lofty, and they never collapse. And you can, yeah, but like things like that. But it's a manufacturing story, just like every other manufacturer. Go to any small town in Ontario that used to do something. Well, all the small and, towns around here that are built on yes, rivers, they yes. were all based on mill economies. And Whether were, it be yeah, a, a, a grain mill yeah, or a woolen mill yeah, or a fulling mill yeah, or anything. Anything. And even... Yeah. Um, a lot of southern Ontario was based on these products, these agricultural products. And they were mostly, uh, they were run by men, but they were worked at yeah. by mostly women. Yeah. Who made something like seven cents for every ten? Yeah, cents yeah, said, yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, that <laughs> that was. Yeah, it, it, that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. Yeah, just like food, it's sort of clothing and other textiles. How they're made is a really good indicator of material culture and what that culture values. And everything has been outsourced to the point where, when we talk about rebuilding a fiber shed, we're really talking about reskilling, retooling relearning 
all these things that used to just be second nature and used to people just sort of learned it with their upbringing and stuff. We have to go back and look in the archive and oh, how do we do this? Or connect with the guilds and where there's that knowledge yeah. is still there. Yeah, um, and it's not just about doing it all by hand. It's also appropriate, appropriate technology yeah. and appropriate machinery because. If you've ever made a sweater, which you are now in the process of making, it takes a lot of, and I'm sure you've made them. I never have, so I'm ignorant of that. But I do know when I did, no, when I got my first two sheep, and I did actually cost analysis of what it would take for me to actually make a sweater and how much it would it would have to sell for for me to actually make any money off of it or even get paid for it. Yeah, it was. And there aren't too many people out there on a general rule that can afford nine hundred dollars sweaters. So that was another big thing, is making it accessible. And that's where the technology comes in. But it's also how things are made, very mm-hmm. much reskilling. And manufacturing is not a dirty word no. in our world. No. What do we have in terms of mills? And do we have any weaving mills or knitting left in Ontario? No. Not that it's open for people to bring them in. They do still exist, yeah, but the they tend thing. to be very closed loop. So they bring in. So this is what Becky was saying about scale: is to access a truly kind of a more industrial size, you need minimum numbers. So if say if I want blankets made, and even if I if I want to go to a blanket weaver that is going to get me a, a reasonably priced blanket, and by reasonably priced I mean say under three hundred dollars of local wool and local everything else, I'm needing approximately twenty five hundred pounds of wool. So that's is possible for one farmer, but that's a lot of work to do it, and that's a then that's a lot of upfront. Costs. It's it's a it's a lot of upfront cost. So, and it's sometimes hard to get access to that, and the people that want to make it, they just want blankets. And that's talking specifically yeah. about wool. When it yes. comes to if you want to get into uh, knitting or weaving for actual yeah. fabric with drape that you can wear. Yeah, it's a whole different ballgame. <laughs> but yeah, so <laughs> there are the manufacturers here, but often they are buying more consistent products from overseas because overseas has already got that infrastructure in place because that is the one thing about manufacturing. The, the difference between kind of small-scale, even boutique manufacturing, small-scale handmade and getting even into small-scale manufacturing is you do actually need a degree of consistency that to just to, to have the product come out the same way every time and as a spinner it's really nice to be able to have a consistent yarn because that's what you want you don't still want lumpy art yarn socks that's why a lot of people go to this type of product and completely understandable because that's what the consumer expects because the other thing that you learn about business and it goes for any business is you can't just put something out there say we want you to buy it you're going to buy that it it's kind of like, what do you, it's a dialogue. When you're selling, when you're talking to a consumer, it's a dialogue between the manufacturer, the seller, and the buyer. It's like, well, what problem can I solve for you? It's like, well, this is the pro, this is what I've got. I have lumpy art, art yarn for socks. They're going to walk away because mm-hmm. it doesn't work. So that's also very much about having those dialogues. And then also trying to put those, as Becky was saying, those um, processes in place to get from, a farmer's like, how do we get 2,500 pounds of wool to get to the mill? Mm-hmm. How do we do that? One farmer often can't do that. But this is what Upper Canada Mercantile does is almost, I'm going to say middleman. Mm-hmm. And that's often in a lot of circles, the it's often considered a bad word. 
but there is a lot of value brought to somebody that can source things and bring those things together into a usable product. Because as a farmer or as a maker, you often don't have those that kind of time <laughs> to do all these different things. That's why you hire people. <laughs> you can't do everything yourself. So I think a lot about mm-hmm. relationships and building those relationships and being taken seriously by those larger manufacturers and sourcing and being able to talk their language, which is a challenge. Because if you're not in manufacturing, how do you know what to say? <laughs> do you think we have enough demand for the stuff that we're already producing? Are people, our consumers are looking for more product, for more yarn, for more blankets, for so? Is the market saturated yet? Yeah. No, not even close. not even close. Not even close. The problem is yeah. scale and affordability. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I've talked to most of the yarn stores in Ontario. They all say we would love to have <laughs> local. We get people asking all the time, once a day, "Where's your local? Where can I find yeah. this?" And then the trouble there is the price. It's mm-hmm. as soon as you're including bricks and mortar retail, the markups are a hundred percent. So it takes a skein of yarn that a farmer could sell direct for twenty dollars would be forty dollars at a store, and it's just it's it's difficult. Exactly. It's really difficult. Yeah, and don't forget about dyeing. <clears throat> Talk about if you want to get natural right. natural local dyes, then you're looking at sixty dollars for whole yeah. And we're kind of throwing out numbers there. These are not necessarily accurate. They're, they're, ballpark. they're ballpark, so don't take those don't as... Us. Yeah, don't take those as like, that's what it examples. is. Yeah. They, are, they are ballparks. People are yeah. so excited about yeah. the idea. It's There's definitely the demand. I think landmade is a really good indicator of how much demand there yeah. is. Um, yeah. or, or yes, or the Wool Guild. The Wool the, Guild, the yeah. Canadian, people kind of come the fact out. Canadian U was there yeah. and had yarns. Kind of the renaissance of... Um, yeah of knitting and all these these techniques people are just so eager for it they just want the tactile you know that sensory experience um but that being said when it comes to finished products like clothing blankets Mm -hmm. there i don't think there's a bit of a lag there's still the idea Mm -hmm. that you can do it yourself and that you're not going to pay four hundred dollars for it because you know that's it that is a lot of money to invest in something but I would argue the problem that we are solving for the consumer is we are addressing all the externalities of cheap fossil fuel based products that get sunk into other countries, other ecosystems, other people's cultures, wasted labor. And it's just, we get really cheap goods because the rest of the world pays for it. When you look throughout Ontario, out of the GTA, the number of small towns that are, are completely ripe for new industries to come in. And often though, there's a lot of skill in a lot of small towns in Ontario that are just dying to do something. It's being able to make that investment in a new something. Um, we did see it in the craft brewery. Yes. Um, like in Blythe. And, and like Blythe, there is a new cowbell brewery that is, is being built even the popularity of Canadian Centre for Rural Creativity, there is a demand there. And, of course, living costs are all, living costs are often less expensive in small-town Ontario, which means um, labour costs can be more reasonable because if you live in downtown, in the GTA, anywhere in the GTA, it's extremely expensive 
And that comes out to like all around the lake, whether it be Hamilton or like all around Lake Ontario, where the majority of the population is, is very expensive. So your 17, 18, $20 an hour job actually doesn't get you that far. Whereas if you're in, in small town Ontario, actually a $20 an hour job is not bad mm -hmm. because the housing prices, your house doesn't cost seven, $800,000. You can still buy a nice house for three to 400. So, and, and even that's actually in some places, that's a very nice house. So it's also very much a dialogue of urban and rural. And a lot of places where historically production took place was in rural Ontario. It can happen again. And there's a very particular skill set that comes with living out of an urban center. It's kind of the same as the local food yeah. movement too, is the you know, get to know your farmer, farmer's feed cities. Yeah. There's a lot in common between the fiber yeah. movement and uh, the local food movement. And the two systems are the same. I mean, it's it's all agricultural products. It, it, it is, yeah, they very much marry each other and very complementary. The difference, um, like you said, is you can't have sheep in your backyard in the yeah. city. So. Yeah. Sheep, they're, they're all year long. <laughs> you know, but, and alpaca, the same thing, you know, they're the same, but... Um, how cool would it be, though, to have sheep grazing on the open spaces in the cities, you know, in the parks and, and all It's a very that. cool idea, but there's and a whole bunch of stuff that's really challenging. And then you can have your backyard sheep in the city. It's not sweater. that easy. I wish it was that easy. It really is not <laughs> that easy. Because it's not the sheep that's the <laughs> issue. It's the, people that, it's, it's the people that are the issue or the people with dogs that are the issue. Yeah. And this is a problem in a lot of urban green spaces is there are so many more people that are destroying the green spaces because everybody wants to forage. Everybody wants to collect dyes and then they just decimate it. So th there's a lot of dialogue. So Fiber Shed is also very much about connecting, like a lot of local food, rural and urban, but it's also about respecting each other's place mm -hmm. and realizing they both have different skill sets and they both are just as valid. And you really can't look at city life through a rural lens and rural life through an urban lens that that's a very very big thing it's really different and not everybody's cut out for it no <laughs> it just not and not everybody's cut out for farming but if you are do it and if you think you can raise animals there's almost an obligation to because it, it is a really challenging job because it's kind of like 24 7 365 you're looking after a bunch of toddlers and they never grow up would you agree with us, Becky, that Fibershed is probably mostly about making connections between different parties that usually don't talk? It's. I always want to say we're we're like a dating service, but oh, I, I, I like hate that. that analogy. I love that analogy. I, it's too cheesy. Hey, cheesy is <laughs> good. But it, that's essentially what we are. We take yeah. all these different. Very specific knowledge sets and figure yeah. out a way to put them together in a way that makes sense. And so they can complement each other exactly. as opposed to. We all need each other. I yeah. Think it's very collaborative. It's all about community. And I think we, we have a lot of fun. Yeah, we do. We do. And it's actually, it's. I think because there are so many. Actually, there, there are a lot of women in the sheep industry in general, more so than I think any other agricultural industry except maybe market gardening. There's a lot of women in the sheep industry. But I think because there are so many women involved in Fibershed, that the opportunity for dialogue and, and open-mindedness is actually, it's huge. That the larger scale farmers 
that are part of Fibershed, they are women and they want to learn. And they're they're very open. And as a farmer, it's like, I'm learning from them too. And we have different systems. We raise different types of animals. Like, wow, that's a really cool thing you're doing. Is there some way to incorporate it? And I think we see this a lot of everybody getting out of their silos. Oh, it, that, yeah. Uh, yeah, like yeah. getting out of the silos and going, wow, okay, that's actually, that's really interesting. How are you doing that? Yeah. And everything from, it does, not everything has to be handmade, yeah. so you can actually incorporate other people well, and other machinery and, and yo, we can go to Nova Scotia for a living. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. Or we need cotton. Okay, well, let's go down to Texas and talk to the people in Texas, which I also think is run by a lot of women. But just a lot of dialogue and trying to maybe look at similarities as opposed to differences mm-hmm. and not be too hard-nosed. That's, I think, something we've learned is we started off going, oh, got to be local. And yeah, it all has to be this. Perfect. We've really had to expand that just because... It has a mind of its own. It, it does kind of have a mind of its, its own. It's a very organic process, and we're, yes. we're keeping yeah. up with it. As it Are we keeping up with uh, it? That doesn't feel like Barely. <laughs> we need more people to help. Yeah, we need more um, people. Yeah. Yeah. What are the future plans for Fibershed within like next year and next five years? Oh my goodness. Well, this year is the busiest year we have had yet. We kicked off the year with the Guelph Organic Conference because that's our, we do that every year. The, we had land made for the very first time. It's going to become an annual event. Uh, we're at the Knitter's oh. Frolic. So, oh yes, the Knitter's Frolic offered us a table, yeah. so we're going to be there vending some yarn. We're at the um, Woodstock Fleece Festival. Well, that's getting, that's, so hold on a second. <laughs> May. May. We already have, yeah, sorry, yeah. May, we're going to be hopefully at the Environmental Congress. That's right, yes, I forgot, about yeah. about fiber shed and knowledge systems, so sort of going into the academic world and saying, hey, this is happening. And actually, that's something that... We should actually mention is there are two different sections to this, and Becky kind of heads up the academic, because the, the, the research. Yes, there's a very outreach. big research part to this which we haven't talked about. It's been more land based, but yes, there is a very big research that working with uh, Nicole Clank at U of T. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there's. Let's just go back to the events. Yeah, yeah. No, there we go. Sorry. <laughs> so May that's happening. I feel like there's something. Well, there's and then there's just um, festivals in the summer. I think. You're probably going to go to Holstein. And maybe. We'll see. Maybe. Sarah, Sarah Jean is doing a talk mm-hmm. in Peterborough over the Easter weekend. Yeah. And then there's our AGM in August, yeah. which is a really yeah. big and exciting event. We always have lots of fun at that. So, yeah, then the Woodstock Police Festival. Uh, and then we're into the fall, and we're going to do another landmate-style event, only it's going to be mm-hmm. um, a fiber shed marketplace So yeah. for the makers to come as well. And then we're into the holidays, and then it's all Back over again. Back to the World Conference. <laughs> yeah, but this year we're... So last year we sort of piloted the Backyard Flax project, and we had people growing little pots of flax all over the place. And, it, you know, it was... It, I called it the pre-pilot phase. Like, like, we'll just see how it goes. And this year some people have actually picked up the torch and are l- looking at getting seed again and looking at, I want to say... Less people, but bigger plots, and figuring out that whole processing and that phase. Um, Do you have any processing for flax? It's no. all hand. It's all, all done hand, by yeah. hand. So. <laughs> old school. Yeah, very Super old school. school, yes. But the knowledge is there. The knowledge is there, but that's yeah. like you kind of have to learn it on that very small scale, so then you can you know what to look for when you're going 
to the next to scale it. I mean, we're all because we do actually have farmers that are willing to grow acres of it. Yes, we we have quite a few farmers. Yeah, that they're, they're willing that. to try it, but we need to do something with dried stems. Yeah, we're very much <laughs> we're in the prototyping stage mm-hmm. for everything, and mm-hmm. our big focus out of the AGM last year, the number one thing that our our members came forward and said they want is access to new markets. So we've just been focusing on the marketing, on providing different opportunities, just getting yarn into the hands of consumers that so desperately want this. Educating, really. Oh, I forgot about the... There's a natural dye symposium happening mm-hmm. in May, and we're going to be uh, providing the fiber for that. So that's another exciting event. And that's actually beginning, the natural guys are beginning to take on a life of its own as well, which is really exciting. Yeah. We can't do everything. So the future is really looking at, we need to, we really need funding. We really need yes. some way to stabilize what we're doing and to provide some income so that we can look at the bigger picture and say, exactly, let's do an inventory. What is our, what does our resource base look like? How much do we actually have? What is it really good for? Going out and visiting each farm and sampling what they have and creating a resource that we can then take to this, the fashion schools and say, you know, when you're teaching your students about supply chains, let's talk about fiber sheds. Yeah. Which the fashion schools are interested in. Very like, They really in. want to know this. Yeah. And then also looking at environmental stewardship. And we already are at, a lot of our farmers are very, they do look at their practices, they have environmental farm plans and they're very sustainable, but let's look at carbon farming. What are some things that they can do in addition to make sure that that carbon in the atmosphere is actually getting sequestered underground? And how do we monitor that? And what 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 does that actually mean for our fiber shed? So looking and that's at what Congress is about, isn't it? Sort of. You and Nicole and Sarah Jean are kind of heading up, uh, basically are, are looking at research projects for carbon sequestration through fiber shed and basically the carbon footprint of, of, of local wool. Or local farm systems, maybe. We need to talk about climate change. We need to talk yeah. about biodiversity. We need to really focus on the environmental leadership aspect of this, too. So getting the marketing underway, and then it's, you know, we can start looking at these bigger systems. Yeah. And also funding to just keep the lights on, because at the moment, everybody volunteers. It's everything. all volunteer. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's all volunteers. And as we get bigger and people are more interested, it's like, okay, and as we get busier, busier as individual people. So the other yeah. thing I just want to say, too, is we have a lot of space within the organization for members to bring forward their ideas, and then we can workshop those and help yeah. them sort of achieve their bigger picture goals, too. There's a lot coming in, and a lot of it we don't even know about yet. So, If uh, people want to get in touch with you, or if you're looking for a certain kind of volunteers, where do they go for your information? Go to the website uppercanadafibershed.ca and just shoot us an email and say what you're interested in and how you want to get involved and we'll take it from there. Uh, we also have a Facebook page. We're on Instagram. Email is usually the best. Email is definitely Yeah, the best. email is definitely the best. Facebook messages get lost sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> to stay on top of what we're up to, yeah. Facebook, Instagram is yeah. the best. And our newsletter. You can sign up with a don't spam. No, we don't spam. It's a lovely newsletter. And you do get opportunities as particularly if you become a member, you get various opportunities and also get behind the scenes because that's actually something else we're looking at in the next, uh, I used to ask about five years, in the next year to, to probably two, three years is looking at various workshops. 
ever, from everything from producers to, to consumers of how to do something. So kind of educational opportunities for various levels of uh, makers, farmers, producers, retailers, manufacturers, things like that. And finally, and this year is also about moving the verification program ahead because we do have tags that that uh, producers and uh, makers get from us that verifies that, yeah, we actually know about this product and it is an actual fiber shed product. And we have an online store too. So if yeah. you're looking for something specific, go check out the store. If we don't have it, send us an email. We'll see if we can find it for you. Yeah, or we'll put you in touch with who does. Yeah. I'm so grateful to Jennifer and Becky for our chat. I hope you enjoyed it and discovered something new. If you would like to connect with Upper Canada Fiber Shed, you can find all the links in the show notes at woolguild.com under podcast. If you have any suggestions for our future podcasts or would like to get in touch, you can always reach us at Woolguild on Facebook and Instagram or through our website. Thanks for listening to this first episode of Woolcast. Until next time.